Good morning, church. I want to welcome you today to Church Online at Calvary Monument Bible Church. I want to take a moment to thank those who have laid down their lives for our good and the good of our country. Our service men and women serving in every branch. Really, what a fabulous example of sacrificial love to set aside their own personal agendas and the things that they would want to be doing here and to go and to serve for our freedom. We are incredibly thankful to you today. Thank you so much on this Memorial Day weekend. I love that we have been in Jesus's farewell discourse in these difficult days away from one another. I believe it's, it's amazing. Jesus knew exactly where we would be as we began to study the book of John many, many, many months ago. Jesus knew we would be in this exact situation and in this exact text today as we sit in our homes. And over the last few weeks, I have been learning so much about Jesus's example of leadership as he leads his disciples through this really pivotal and transitional time in his ministry. There is major, major change happening in every aspect of Jesus's life and ministry in his farewell discourse in John's chapter 13 through 16. And it's been amazing to spend this time together with you. I'm comforted that Jesus uses his word to care and to provide for us in these seasons. And he certainly has done that uh, in the ministry of his word over the last few weeks. And we continue in our series in John today, and we're nearing the conclusion of John's farewell discourse. In fact, we only have one more Sunday left in the discourse before we move with Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane and begin to unpack Jesus's high priestly prayer in John chapter 17. Today, where we're at, we are going to witness an incredible example of Jesus's leadership. Really, this week and next week, Jesus's leadership is on full display. He is the greatest leader to have ever lived and walk the face of this earth. And he is demonstrating that leadership ability as he walks with his disciples through these difficult days. Leadership in times of transition, as many of us are coming to understand and see in these days, it's very difficult. It is not easy. There are a lot of difficult decisions that need to be made. Clarity needs to be spoken. And really, there is a level of focus that is required that is un common. And really, it's, it's a level of focus that leans into our knowledge of who Jesus is, what we know of his word, and how that influences the way that we love the people that he has placed in our pathways to lead in these days. It's a focus that's able to anticipate and answer questions in a way that produces and provides clarity. In fact, we find that productive answers in difficult times of transition, they really accomplish a few different things. They, they provide clarity, they inspire hope, and they motivate joy. And Jesus is modeling this in our text today. He knew his disciples perfectly. Friends, he knows us Perfectly, He knew exactly how and where they would struggle in this time of change and transition. And he knows how his church is struggling and wrestling in this time of change and transition that we're facing today. And Jesus is going to demonstrate in the text today his ability to anticipate questions 
and to give answers in a way that will not only inspire and produce hope, but in a way that will also motivate joy. And really, we're going to be unpacking two answers today to two questions. And the first question is this, what can we learn about leadership in times of change and transition from Jesus's example? And the second, how can we apply that learning to the current situations and circumstances that we find ourselves living in today? Take your Bibles with me uh, in your homes and turn to John chapter 16, Today we're going to be in John chapter 16, starting in verse 16, and we're going to read through to verse 24. John 16, 16 to 24, and before we read, let's take time to pray. Father, we love your word. We are thankful for your word. In difficult days and in uncertain days, your word serves as a source of joy and hope It's a place where we can find encouragement. It's a trustworthy source that encourages our hearts how to love, motivates and uh, changes our minds to help influence our behaviors. And Lord, we pray as we approach your text today that we would learn from the example of Jesus' leadership in this difficult time during his earthly ministry. Father, we know that change was before his disciples. Great change and transition is what they faced. And Lord, you know, as our sovereign king, as a church today, that we sit in a place where we are facing enormous change and transition. Father, you knew we would be here. You knew this is the text that we would be in. You love us so much to guide us and direct us to this place in your word where we can find truth, hope, and comfort for these days. And I pray, Lord, that you would help us to learn from the example of Jesus and that his example might motivate us to love, live, and lead in the same way that he did. We need your help, Lord. Guide and direct our time together today. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. John 16, 16 to 24, this is Jesus speaking to his disciples. A little while, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, what is this that he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me. And again, a little while, and you will see me. And because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, what does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he is talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted what they wanted to ask him. So he said to them, is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is given birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, 
but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. Four little words. Four little words that are so difficult for the heart of a child or even sometimes for our hearts as adults to accept. They're difficult words. We do not like to hear them in a little while. Some of the least comforting words that we can hear. What does that even mean in a little while? Mom, when are we going to go to the pool? Oh, in a little while. What? What is that? Or, you know, inevitably we'd be as a young child in the backseat of a car. We'd be driving to some place, some uh, vacation destination, and we'd have this long trip before us. And as we were driving, we'd be so excited. We didn't have TVs in our vehicles back then. Um, in fact, we had Walkmans, tapes, tapes that were about this size for the generation that's uh, younger than me. They were about this size and you slid them into a Walkman and closed it and put headphones on, big headphones. It didn't really occupy you for that long. And as you were driving down the road, impatient, waiting to get to that destination, Dad, when are we going to get there? Oh, we'll be there in a little while. Not helpful. Yeah, I, I didn't realize as a child at that young of an age that a little while is actually a literal location on the clock of every grown-up. That's what it felt like. I have to say as I stand here today that I am guilty <laughs> as a parent now of using the same exact phrase. And perhaps I'm a great abuser of it. We take our boys up to nap time almost every day up in their rooms and it usually goes that after about 15 or 20 minutes they're bored looking at books. They don't really want to look out the window anymore. They're in their beds. They want to go down and play and they'll say something like, Papa, fini kushe nankaban. Are we done being in our bed now? Can we go downstairs and play? And so often I find myself saying, uh, in a little while, they've come to know what that phrase means. And actually, it's usually met with great disdain as they look across the room at me and flash me those eyes. And in their little Haitian language, they say, Pukisa. Why? Why? Jesus begins our text this morning with a multitude of in a little whiles. Verse 16, and a little while you will see me no longer. And again, a little while and you will see me. He's talking about his death and his resurrection. Jesus has used these words often throughout his time with the disciples. He's frequently used this phrase. In fact, in your note guide this morning, in the supporting text column, you will find three or four locations in the book of John where Jesus uses this exact phrase. Take a look at John 14, 19. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more. 
but you will see me because I live, you also will live. The fact that Jesus' disciples might have heard this a lot from Jesus didn't necessarily make it any more comforting to them in this moment. And, and really, there are two specific questions that have them caught up here. First, what is Jesus saying at the beginning of verse 17? And second, what does he mean by what he's saying? We see that in verse 18. And both of those questions lead to their conclusion at the end of verse 18. You can look at it. It's almost resounding. We do not know what he is talking about. All of this behind the clear and compelling words of Jesus that came before in this discourse. A lesson to us that it is easy for us to miss the meanings and intentions behind Jesus' words, friends. It's a reminder that we need to remain humble with a posture that is open to hearing and a posture that is open to learning. I like to use the phrase open hands. Hands that are free from trying to grab and control and manipulate. Open hands. These days, friends, are going to require open hearts, open hands, and open minds. The statement that the disciples were struggling with here is the very statement that we struggle with as children and sometimes even as adults. Look at verse 18. At the center of their struggle was the meaning of that pervasive phase. What does he mean by a little while? And here's another place in John's gospel where the excellence of Jesus' leadership is on full display. The beginning of verse 19 exposes a reality of every great leader. And that is this. Great leaders know the people they've been called to lead. Now there's a reality that, that we have to confront here. And that is that we will never have the level of knowledge that Jesus had for his people. Jesus knew his disciples perfectly. Friends, we will not know the people that God has placed in our pathways perfectly here on this earth. But the principle remains. The most effective leaders know the people and are known by their people. This is something that we have seen about Jesus' leadership from the beginning. It's something that John wanted us to know from the very beginning of his gospel, that Jesus knew his people. He knew people perfectly. John chapter 2, verses 24 and 25. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man and we see in another example in john 6 61 where jesus knows within himself that the disciples are grumbling with the teaching that he had just given them as the greatest leader ever to live jesus knew his disciples perfectly And he was able to anticipate their emotions and their feelings and their questions. And he was consistently anticipating how they might be feeling. I've learned a lot 
about the leadership of Jesus and I've been influenced a lot by Jesus' example of leadership in this time of transition. Confusing and uncertain situations often lead to a deluge of questions. We're living in days like this right now, friends, right where we sit. And our pastors, our elders, our staff, the leaders in our church, they are working hard. I promise you they're working hard. A lot of them are burning both ends of the candle and they are trying to think and anticipate the questions and be proactive in the communication to help prepare and level expectations. This is a difficult task. It is not easy. It's one that we approach humbly with open hands. It's one that we know that we will experience failure in. We will not be able to anticipate all of the questions. And sometimes we may even miss or overlook some of the most important ones. We hope that we don't do that, but we will. We, we cannot live like or lead like Jesus because we are not perfect like Jesus was. Our desire, church, is to simply follow him, follow his example in this area of our leadership as we walk through this difficult time together with you. Jesus so beautifully and perfectly anticipates their question. Take a look at the middle of verse 19. Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying a little while and you will not see me and again a little while and you will see me? Jesus's clarity and precision in his anticipation of this question are a beautiful example to us. Friends, the reality is this, the better we know the people that God has called us to lead, the more clearly we will be able to anticipate their questions. And this is one of the reasons as, as a pastor who's still fairly new at Calvary Monument Bible Church that I am so thankful for our elders and our staff and our leaders who have been here a long time and really know our people. They are so helpful in these days. They've helped to anticipate questions. And understanding questions helps to aid in the construction of clear and precise answers. And Jesus has done this. He's constructed a clear and precise answer to the question that the disciples had. Look with me at verse 20. Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. And I have to ask, really, doesn't it seem that our protests against in a little while are nothing more than a desire to want things on our own terms? I mean, think about this as it relates to reopening our building. If you were to ask one of our leaders, when, give me a date, when is the building going to be reopened? And they were to respond to you, oh, in a little while. Our, our protest to that really is because we have an expectation. We have a desire of when in our minds. We'd like to know when these doors are going to be able to be reopened, but sometimes we don't have the answers to those questions. 
Jesus knew. He knew his disciples would not be satisfied in that moment. And he knows for his disciples there will be weeping and lamenting that is coming. It's a reality. And what he's doing is he's anchoring their expectations to the reality that he knows is to come. And he teaches them that while on one side, Jesus' closest followers will be weeping and lamenting, on the other side, there will be a world that is rejoicing. The tears of sorrow that would drip from the eyes of Mary, Martha, John, and the other disciples. These would be tears of joy in the eyes of the chief priests the Roman guards, the Pharisees, and the unbelieving world. Jesus did not want his closest friends and disciples going into this blind. He loved them. He wanted to know that this was wanted them to know that this was not going to be easy. This was not going to be free from pain what they were facing. And friends, I will tell you today as we participate in this service together, our regathering will not be easy. It will not be free from sorrow and lament. We have said it before, but it bears weight to say it again and again and again. It will not feel or be the same immediately as it was before COVID-19. And some of us may choose to face that sorrow, continuing to worship together from our homes until there are fewer restrictions on gatherings. Some of us may choose to come and to face it head on, regardless of the restrictions. Both are okay. Both. I think what is most hopeful to us in Jesus' example comes in this next line. It's also what was most hopeful to Jesus' disciples as they faced continuing onward without Jesus' physical presence with them. Look at what he says. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Isn't that incredibly hopeful truth, friends? I'm so glad that there is a comma and not a period after that word sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Friends, there's a truth for us here. There is more to come, and what is to come will be defined by joy. Next week, Jesus is going to tell us about the trouble that is apparent in this world. But then he's going to give one of his greatest statements of victory in the entire Gospel of John. I don't want to spoil it. You'll have to tune in next week or just read ahead a little bit and you'll see it. So understanding that there was still a bit of confusion among his disciples, Jesus continues to clarify with a very precise illustration. If the truth, friends, is a nail, then a good illustration is is as effective as a hammer. And Jesus is about to pin this truth to the hearts and the minds of his disciples. Take a look again. When a woman 
is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. Now, I am not going to pretend like I know anything about this illustration, at least the pain part and the anguish part about this illustration. I think Jesus is demonstrating great courage that he actually used this illustration. And, and I had to wonder this week, early on when I was studying this text, if there were any women who were present as he was teaching in this moment. He's pressing into an analogy of pain that is associated with birth, and he's connecting it here to its messianic implications. And this is something that goes all the way back to the book of Genesis. Genesis chapter 3. This is God speaking to Adam and Eve in the garden. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Isaiah continues this theme, and again, it's a prominent theme that you see in Isaiah in multiple places, but you also see it in Micah as well, this, these labor pains connected to messianic implications. Isaiah twenty six seventeen, like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so we were because of you, O Lord. The clearest understanding of this that I can give is from our story of Bailey's birth. Bailey was our bio child that couldn't wait to come into the world. Our boys, they could have cared less. They had to pretty much be pried out. Bailey, she was ready to come flying out of there 100 miles per hour and she wasn't waiting for anybody. It's so funny how their birthing stories each kind of associate with their personalities today. But I remember in the car driving what felt like a hundred miles per hour to get to the hospital because she was on her way waiting for no one. And when we got there, I mean, Sheila was in pain. She had been in labor. The doctor hadn't realized that she had already had a child 18 months before Bailey. The doctor had thought this was her first birth. So she had just kept telling her, stay at home. Just stay at home. You're okay. By the time we got into triage, they were robing me up and telling me to get ready to deliver this baby. Not my job. I, I was terrified. I do not do well. And Sheila will tell you, blood is very difficult for me. Uh, she can affirm that. And, and I was thinking about the realities of this, and I was thinking about the pain that my wife was in, and I remember her looking at the nurse and saying, can, can you give me something for the pain? And the nurse said, she looked at her, now think about discomforting words. She looked at her and she said, oh honey, it's, it's far too late for that. So there we were. And I have to tell you, I had sorrow. I had sorrow when I was given a robe in triage. And they told me to put gloves on. And they tell, told me that I needed to prepare like I was going to have to deliver the baby. We were scared. I was scared. Can't imagine how, what Sheila felt. <laughs> she probably was mortified thinking I was going to be the one to do this and knowing how little I know about these things. But that sorrow gave way to joy 
when the midwife came bursting into the room and whisk us away into a labor and delivery room. And it did not take long, friends, maybe 15 minutes. And Bailey was in this world. And there was great joy. The anguish that Sheila faced in that labor and delivery, even though it was short, gave way to joy as Bailey came into the world. All of the sorrow, all of the pain faded. And you know what's interesting, church? We are in a similar situation today. Jesus says to his disciples in verse 22, So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. We live in a world full of sorrow. That is the truth, friends. This earth, this place that we live, there is groaning, there is pain, there is torment, there is disease, there is abuse, there is murder, there is violence, there is war, there is death. So thankful that this is not our eternal resting place. This world is full of sorrow. Paul says in Romans chapter 8, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoptions as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Church, as believers, we have the first fruits of our salvation in the Holy Spirit. And legally, in a legal sense, we are adopted as sons and daughters of God. But now, right here on this earth, we're not experiencing the fullness of those realities. There is pain, there is sorrow, there is turmoil, there is trouble. Just as Jesus was helping his disciples anticipate the joy that would come behind the resurrection, we can also be reminded of the joy that will follow his second coming. In heaven, friends, there's an inheritance that awaits. No pain, no sorrow. It's an inheritance that's uncorrupted and unfading. Friends, everything on this earth fades away. Everything on this earth becomes corrupted. But what great hope for us in days of uncertainty to know that there is an inheritance kept before us that is completely uncorrupted and will never be corrupted. It's completely unfading and it will never, ever fade. Not one little bit. When Jesus rose from the dead and then appeared to his disciples, there was nothing or no one that could stand any longer to rob them of their joy. And Jesus is fastening their future joy onto the truth and the hope of the resurrection. It is a joy that we should still have today, church. Even though we long for our future glory, we long for that day to be in heaven with the Lord. 
We live now with joy in the truth and hope of Jesus' resurrection. And no one and no circumstance should be able to rob us of that joy. Even as we regather in our building in a way that may be difficult and seem restrictive, there is nothing that has changed in regards to the truth of our salvation and the joy of the Lord should remain the source of our strength, of our hope, and of our comfort. You know what I love about the example of Jesus' leadership throughout the entire New Testament, throughout the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John? you want to sum up the example of Jesus' leadership? An example for us today, church? Jesus demonstrates that love leads best. Love leads best. And he's shown this by the way he's communicated, by how he's been able to anticipate the emotions and the feelings and the question, by his ability to clarify, to redirect when needed. Watch in the Gospel of John over and over again as Jesus takes his disciples' minds and he redirects them and sets them on things that are above rather than the circumstances and situations that are around them. He's using illustrations. He's guiding. He is functioning, friends, as all. Our shepherd and he's giving every shepherd whoever serves in the church of God a beautiful and clear example of what this kind of shepherding leadership looks like love must lead and as he does this it's amazing the minds of his disciples are set towards hope and joy their behaviors change the patterns of their lives are changed as Jesus' example of love leads them. Ask and receive. Look at verse 23. In that day, Jesus is speaking of the day of his resurrection after he resurrects from the dead and appears to the disciples. In that day, you will ask nothing of me. Why? All we've seen for the last number of chapters in John is incessant questioning by Jesus' disciples. They have so many questions. Where are you going? We don't know the way. Why are you doing this? What do you mean by a little while? What do you mean by going to the Father? What? 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 Question after question after question. So what changed? What changed that would so securely set the disciples' feet that they would literally have no more questions for Jesus. They would see clearly. It was his resurrection, friends. Jesus conquered death and rose from the grave. And in that event, in that event and in that moment, all of the words that he had spoken to them in previous teachings, all of the miracles that he had done, all of the work that they had accomplished together while he was on earth, everything was confirmed with this one gigantic act of love and power. There was no more uncertainty. From the point of the resurrection forward, there would be a significant change 
in the way that the disciples would interact with God. Take a look at the end of verse 23. Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Instead of asking Jesus directly, they will now directly ask the Father in the name of Jesus. And in this change, in this transition of Jesus' life and ministry, we begin to see how the relationship would continue between Jesus and his disciples. And it answers this broader question, how would disciples of Jesus continue to experience a relationship with him even after he ascended to the Father? And the answer to that question, friends, is that Jesus is now serving and functioning as our great high priest. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So comforting, church, for us to remember and to realize that Jesus is our great high priest. We ask the Father in the name of Jesus. Did you ever wonder why we say that in our prayers at the end? In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We always say that, but maybe we've never considered why we say it because Jesus instructs us to ask in his name. And we ask in Jesus' name because he is interceding and pleading on our behalf with the Father. And again, it's so important that we clarify, we don't want to misuse these verses. When Jesus says, ask anything in my name and you'll receive it, we know that, that they've been used by the health and wealth, prosperity gospel in dangerous ways that have really led many people astray. We need to remember, we come to realize that if we're asking something of the Father in the name of Jesus, it must be in line with that which would please Jesus. If it's not in line with that which would please Jesus, then we should not be asking it in the first place. Look at verse 24. Until now, you've asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive that your joy may be full. There was no reason before the resurrection for the disciples to ask anything of the Father in Jesus' name. Jesus was physically with them. But now Jesus is saying, I will be with you no longer. Ask in my name. And isn't it interesting that that which we receive should result in our joy being full. So the question that we might ask ourselves today in light of these realities, how might our lives look? 
What has characterized our life and our leadership, our love in these days of change and transition? Would we answer joy? Would we answer thankfulness? Would we answer love? Maybe you've thought to yourself as you were listening today, well, I I don't know if I'm really leading anyone. I don't know if I have anyone in my life who I lead or who I influence. And uh, maybe maybe you live alone now at this season of your life and you feel like, who are the people I'm leading and influencing? Can I share that I believe the world is watching, friends? The world is watching how the church reacts to this situation. And I'm telling you, there's many in this world that would rejoice to see the church fight, divide, conquer, argue, become bitter, closed-handed, controlling, manipulative as we seek to regather. But I don't think that's our spirit, church. That's not the spirit I've witnessed in these days from the overwhelming number of you that I've spoken to. There are many who are watching. Our neighbors want to see how we're going to respond. Our children want to see how we're going to respond. Will our response be characterized by joy, by thankfulness, by love? Our grandchildren, our nieces, our nephews, all of the people the Lord has placed in our pathways. As a believer in Christ, friends, you are a person of power and influence because Jesus has given us that spirit, a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. So know that the world is watching wherever you might be. They're watching our response to this. What are we showing them? Has our response been one of blaming, complaining, defending, making excuses, trying to rationalize all these different things that are going on? If so, friends, we need to be aware that our response then looks very similar to the unbelieving world's response. That's how everyone's responding. That's how the world responds to change and difficulty. Blame, complain, make excuses, try to rationalize behaviors, try to justify things. Jesus' example of leadership in transition and change is an example of of leadership that starts with love. Love leads best. That's what Jesus is demonstrating. He knew his disciples would be hurting. Church, our neighbors are hurting. People are lonely, feeling helpless. Some are feeling purposeless. They're without work for the first time in their life. There are friends and family members I've talked to that are collecting unemployment that thought in their entirety of their existence that they would never be collecting unemployment and they're wrestling with emotions and feelings. And if we show up and we just stoke the fears, stoke those emotions by blaming and complaining and participating in the same attitudes and behaviors that have come to define the world's response in this moment, then what are we showing the unbelieving world? How are we leading? How are we loving? How are we living? I just don't believe it's an accident that Jesus has us in this text today. His leadership in this great time of transition for him and his disciples is such a fitting example for us. 
And if there was ever a time that someone had justification to blame, to make excuses, to complain, Jesus would have had it. The world was literally against him. And he had done nothing wrong. But resolute and full of purpose, purpose that was supernatural because it was purpose that had been given to him by God and did not need the circumstances and situation of the day to fill it. Jesus fixed his attention on glorifying his Father by loving the people that God had placed in his pathway the best. He's not making excuses as he walks to the cross. He's dropping on his knees and he's praying in John 17. He's not blaming an unbelieving world as Peter takes his sword and slices the ear off of the Roman guard. He's not complaining or blaming and saying, yeah, he deserved that because I didn't do anything wrong. They're going to take my life from me and I did nothing. Picks up the ear. He heals the man. He's anticipating the questions and the emotions of the day and he's answering them with clarity and he's delivering hope and joy to his disciples in strange and difficult days. And the better we know and love the people that God has directed into our pathways, the better we will be able to anticipate and answer the questions that they have with clarity, motivating hope, motivating joy in their lives. Friends, if... If someone in our life has no hope and we show up, how can we direct their hope to Jesus if we're engaging in the same hopeless behaviors that they are? If someone in our life is not able to experience peace, how can we direct their eyes to the Prince of Peace if we show up and engage in those same attitudes and stoke the same fire of fear and blame and excuses? We can't. If the patterns of our lives, if the patterns of the people's lives that Jesus placed in our pathway are not producing joy and we come to them mired in the same patterns, how will they see in us the fullness of joy that we are to have in Jesus Christ? Friends, I've talked to so many people during this season people in my neighborhood, people in my community, people on the phone, people across the country, and some people, boy, they're struggling with this. And I listen, and I listen, and then I like to say, you know, I see things a little bit differently. I see a church that's thriving. I don't see a church that's been crippled. I see a church that's thriving. And I believe it because our joy, our victory is not based on the circumstances of the world around us. It is secured in the person and the work of Jesus Christ. And friends, I recognize 
I have been through times like this in this season. I preach this to myself as much as I say it to you, that some of us could be sitting at home even today and struggling to try to find the hope and the peace and the joy and the love and the encouragement in this situation. And I would say that what we need to do when we are in those places is we need to pray and ask the Father in Jesus' name to give us peace, to give us hope, to give us joy, to show us how we can demonstrate that love leads best. And friends, if we do this and we ask this in the Father's name, He will produce these attitudes and patterns in our lives. He'll help us because these are things that would honor and glorify Him. They are according to His will. So as we close our time together today, friends, I would ask you, to ask yourself, is my joy full today where I'm sitting? Am I able to love people, to lead people in a way that they can see my response is different than the world's because of the reality of Jesus in my life? Am I a person that's producing hope, joy, peace, and comfort In these days? Or am I a person that's stoking the flames of fear and hostility? Doubt? Where do I stand today? Let's pray. Again, Lord, your word has a way of hitting us right where we need it. So encouraging, so challenging. Your son led in such a way, in such an example, that we might follow today, Lord, as we find ourselves in this situation, as we sit in our homes, gathered with families, living in the atmosphere and effects and consequences of COVID-19. Lord, we need your help to be people who produce joy and comfort and peace and hope. Lord, there are patterns in our lives, there are attitudes, there are behaviors that you need to help us change. We can't do it on our own. We need you, Father. And so, Lord, our prayer today is that we would look, continue to look to the example of Jesus. That he might motivate us, guide us, and direct us. And that we might honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Friends, we'll see you next week. Have a great afternoon.